Hello, and welcome to Manga Explaining, the show where we recommend great manga to folks who haven't read much manga before. Hosted by Dabaoki, David Brothers, myself, Christopher Butcher, and Chip Zdarsky, follow along with our show notes, reading list, and much more at mangasplaining.com. Hello, I'm Christopher. I'm hosting this week, and we are looking at Look Back, a one-shot manga by Tatsuki Fujimoto. It is a little different than what we've done before. This is a complete graphic novella, one might say, a graphic novel, a short story, a manga short story. It was released digitally all at once on both the Shonen Jump Plus Japanese page, as well as the Manga Plus and viz.com slash Shonen Jump websites in English. It is by the creator of Chainsaw Man, Tatsuki Fujimoto, as I mentioned, translated by Amanda Haley and lettered by Sneer Arhan. It is really out of left field for Shonen Jump. And I think that that was the thing that really caught my attention when I read it for the first time. And it's kind of why I wanted to bring it up on the podcast and introduce it to everybody else. And basically, <laughs> I know we do the uh, back of the book. There's no book. There's no book yet. There's a book in Japan, but it's not even on, as far as I know, it's not on the schedule in North America yet. And let's say the back of the book description is a young girl makes manga, makes a friend making manga, and tragedy happens, and she has to think about what it means to make manga and why. It's all you, it's all you really need to know, but it is going to get pretty spoilery from this point on as we talk about sort of the intricacies of the series. So on that note, I wanted to actually open it up to the floor. I know that Deb and David, <laughs> David especially, do have professional interests in reading Shonen Jump more regularly than not. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, <laughs> but you know, like sometimes you want to turn off Shonen Jump when you go home at the end of the day of working <laughs> in the Shonen Jump mines. I get it. Yeah. But had you, I guess my first question is, had you guys read this story before I mentioned it for the podcast? Is this something that you, that you, you were familiar with? Deb, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I immediately, when it came out, I immediately read it. I didn't mm. know what it was about. I went in completely blind. And by the end of it, I mean, I, and I finished reading it. I said, if this doesn't win an Eisner Award for best short story next year, I'm going to kick someone's ass. <laughs> Seriously. Will it get nominated for best short story is an even better question. Usually manga only <laughs> it's gets so good. The, and I'm not a huge, it. you know, Chainsaw Man fan and, and and frankly, I haven't picked Fire Punch as my worst manga one year. <laughs> I remember that. Because it was just it is so hard to deal with. It was such a dark and violent and grim story. Chainsaw Man mm. I haven't I've started to get into, but you know, it wasn't something that grabbed me by the and made me want to keep reading. So this mm. this story it's so beautifully drawn and so heartfelt. Hmm. It's quiet and still surprising. Uh, very grounded in reality. Hmm. And just, I think it's really good to go into it not knowing what it's about because it really just, it, it, start, it starts slowly. And then at the end, you're just, you're just gutted by what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize for bringing sadness into everybody's life this week. But it's beautiful. So, David, had you read it? No, I didn't read it because, like you said, some people have a vested interest in reading Shonen Jump, and I'm two or three years behind Shonen Jump right now. <laughs> Just because, you know, when you work somewhere, we were talking about this before, like you don't necessarily want to come home and read the thing you worked on or that 
mm. is published by the place you work for, even if it's very good. You know, like I love One Piece, I love Vag- Vagabond, Slam Dunk, but I kind of work my way around to homework, as I call it. You know, yeah, mm. yeah. And this was really good. You know, look back, it was great. I really enjoyed it, and I knew what it was about going in. Like, I feel like we're all talking around the subtext of it a little bit. I don't know if you're going to get into that a little bit later, Chris. Oh, we will. But we'll let maybe Chip yeah. break the seal on that one. <laughs> so I knew that it was going to be sad. There was going to be a twist. That there was going to be some kind of tragedy to it. And so I was kind of trying to, like my editor critic brain turned on. I was trying to outsmart it as I was reading through a little bit. But it was yeah. still very powerful and hooked me. Like, the story is very good. And it didn't go in a couple of directions I thought it was going, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Overall, I didn't read it when it came out, but I read it because Chris enjoys making me feel sad and I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Some of my picks lately. I'm sorry. (laughs) I guess that it does bring us to Chip uh, and you're welcome, by the way. I didn't find it sad at all. I (laughs) laughed all the way through this story. (laughs) I I yeah, had no concept of what this was going into it. And I also have mm. no concept of Chainsaw Man. Mm. I don't know what that is or... It's a man who's a chainsaw. Is it as simple as that? It really like, is. I mean, it's as simple as that, but then it kind of... Remember Crank? Like the Jason Statham, Nevelina mm-hmm. Taylor movies? It's yeah. that. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Like that's the closest thing to it. Oh, man. I love manga. <laughs> I, I love that you could just like do <laughs> chainsaw man and then do this mm. that's that's pretty remarkable it, this is beautiful mm-hmm. i think in terms of like storytelling and even rendering this might be the most beautiful book we've tackled mm. i praise there are some really interesting techniques especially in terms of like the lighter touch on people's faces in certain scenes to change kind of mm-hmm. the emotional weight mm-hmm. while, while retaining everything else, like was like, you know, standard kind of filling in a black, black line. Just there's a double page spread of her, like just kind of like the joyous kind of rain dance. Yeah. Oh, kind of, but, yeah. Like, but just awkward enough that it's like, it's still just like a kid mm-hmm. and like, like the expression, yeah. like, like she's dancing really hard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like yeah, every, everything in this is just uh, really, really beautiful. And like when the the tragic scene hit, which I, I don't, I don't even know is is it based on a real event? Yeah, uh, it's analogous to it one. Mm. Okay, all right. Which is like a not a school shooting. <laughs> no, <laughs> I feel like that's. <laughs> A departure from uh, America, but like a school like axe attack. Is that? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So when when tragedy hits, I was I was taken aback for sure. But then when it just starts to kind of like mess with time and memories and I I, I don't know if everyone read it the same way, but like mm-hmm. I read it as like her kind of reliving it in her mind going Mm -hmm. a different way especially with how like how big it went with Mm -hmm. with her saving her friend at the end 
with the karate that was mentioned so early in the book, which is a, yeah. also a really nice touch of, of, yeah. of maintaining that loop. Just devoting the space to pages of like, just like emotional drawing and just, yeah. yeah, just giving you a feeling in a page instead of progressing any kind of plot and, and letting yourself kind of do that from page to page to page. Really, really beautiful. Looking at page 94, 95 right here, it's a double page spread and it's the only words on the page are drawing is completely useless. And it's just her looking at this old strip that she finds and just breaking down and tearing up the pages or tearing up the script. And it's that action that sort of sets off the don't come out, you know, yeah. the memories, the, the alternate timeline where things change. And yeah, to be able to take that much time to not have <laughs> anything happen on a double page spread is a real rarity in, in manga and yeah. a shonen jump in particular. And that's why I think that, or jump, even jump plus where this ran. And I think that that's what makes it special. So we've been kind of talking around it and this is your last chance to dip out if spoilers don't get you and go read it, it's literally free on biz.com. So you can go read it, pause this podcast and come back in you know 25 minutes. But this one shot was released uh, this year, July 19th, 2021. And it was on the second anniversary of the Kyoto animation arson attack. KyoAni, as it is affectionately known by fans, Weebs, is a really famous animation studio that put together a lot of really beautiful animation projects and was really beloved in the community. And a man attacked the studio and lit it on fire and people died. And a lot of the things that the man who attacked the studio said are also let's say alluded to by the person who attacks the young artist in the school and who eventually kills her, kills Kiyomoto. And it's tough because something like this could go sideways so easily, like could be something that would be seen to be profiting from or, or benefiting from in some way, this, this horrible tragedy. And I think it is done with such a light touch and so delicately and so thoughtfully, especially, and you know, two years later, that I think those accusations uh, wouldn't land. But I, I do think it is always tough when you tie something like this to a real life event, like the Kyoto Animation arson attack. But the fact is that this has been incredibly well received since it was released um, on Twitter. People just out of nowhere, big mangaka saying, "Oh my God, this is incredible!" Unsolicited praise from people like uh, Inyo Asano, who did Goodnight Pun Pun. Sumido Awara, Rei Hiroi, Ryogo Narita. It's just like people were falling over themselves to go, oh my God, you get it. Like, this is something that everyone needs to read. This is an incredible work. You know, Fujimoto did it, knocked it out of the park. So, yeah, the incomplete <laughs> synopsis from before two girls meet, they decide to make manga together. One inspires the other, and then the other ends up inspiring her. And it was through this action of, of getting better at comics and going to art school that she dies. She's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the second half of the story is the girl who lived imagining what would have happened if things would have went differently. And I want to talk about that specifically because Chip said, oh, I remember that as something that like, you know, this is like, I think this takes place in her mind. She's imagining something different, but I think this is still jump. And it's actually, there's an in-universe <laughs> explanation for this idea. This like one moment of like going back in time of things changing of like, a strip falling, you know, onto the floor and underneath the door in the present time that somehow mysteriously lands back up in the past and it doesn't 
you know, the, 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 what was supposed to happen changes. They never get together. She gives up on, you know, our protagonist gives up on manga. The other girl goes and decides to, you know, study on her own and it enables her to save her. And it's, it's working on a couple of levels here, a couple of meta levels, but the first time I read it, yeah, I absolutely read it as grief as this, you know, girl trying to imagine what could have happened differently to save her friend. But the second time I read it through, I was like, oh, this, this is all in universe. This is, it's trying to explain that like there was this one magical moment where things turned out differently. Maybe here's what that would have looked like. And it's a little bit, it shifts into like weathering with you <laughs> territory or like Makoto Shinkai territory, where it's like this one magical event can undo and change everything. Speaking of anime movies. And I think that that little touch is maybe, maybe what pushed it over the top. So yeah, next question based on what Chip was saying. Did you guys read this as this is grief and she's in, exist, she's in her own memories trying to imagine how things went wrong? Or did you maybe see it as this is just like a sequence of events that's really clearly spelled out with like a little bit of time travel, a little bit of magical realism, a little bit of whatever? Um, how serious is this, I guess? I will say that I took it literally figuratively. Like it's not her memory or anything like that. It's not how I read it, at least. It is probably a bit of magic realism, but I don't think that it actually changes anything. I don't think that she gets this experience. I think it's for the reader so that we oh, get absolutely. that moment of catharsis. And then for her, it's more like her, her change comes when she sees the strip that her friend drew that's in her mm. old style. Mm. Because the entire series, her Komoto is like an incredible artist. And in a comparison, you know, Fujino is sort of insecure because her, like she's better at figures. Yomoto's better at like a full picture. So there's insecurity there. But then she finds all these drawings that her friend did, presumably in her style and this kind of record of their friendship. I think that's the flashback. Like she looks mm -hmm. at the jacket where it has, you know, her name on the back, artisan's jacket. I'm not sure what it's actually called. Like that's where it clicks in her head. And she's like, no, like I, this is why I love this the community, the friendship and that kind of thing. I think the reverie, for lack of a better phrase, like there's, if you look at the, the caption dialogue, like a student sat down on a sofa on the second floor of the building, none of that actually changes anything. It's presumably a news, like a news reading from you know, our regular universe, like where her friend. Yeah, I read it as like a, as like an excerpt from a newspaper or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this totally fanciful thing that happens basically like two pages later. Like this is the fantasy where we get that catharsis of, oh, like they were meant to be friends. Like this is the point. The friendship is the point, not the tragedy. Because yeah. no matter what happened, whether she died or she didn't die, their friendship was still strong until Fujino messes it up, in my opinion. And I think that's like the key because it ends on like that long string of flashbacks of them sharing comics with each other, you know, sharing comics as a culture not just you know as an object mm. you know she's crying reading you know her own work and thinking about her friend and then she goes back to the drawing board so i think that like when i say i take it literally figuratively the fantasies for us like that's our bit of that's our turn mm. but for her it's just like there's very little space between those two i i took it really differently <laughs> yeah hit me all right yeah go I took it as that was her way of making peace with her regrets. You know, as a manga creator, right, you can create universes. You can create 
a reality, right? Uh, that is entertaining, that is emotionally satisfying. You can bend reality. You can tell a reality that is that feels good, right? It's, it's more exciting. You're you're a hero. You say the right thing at the right time. You know all these. You make the right choices. <laughs> to me, it, it, I took it as she was. You know, because by then she's a she's a published manga creator for about five or ten years, yeah, or a couple of years, yeah. And so she starts thinking to herself, like, oh, you know, like she begins with, if only I never met Komodo and gave her that comic strip and got her to leave her house because she was a shut in before. Mm-hmm. And you know, why did I? You know, if if only that moment didn't happen, she would still be a shut in, but she would be safe and she would be alive. And so then she thinks in her mind, like, well, what if that had happened? You know, and then this, she kind of like the, the reality that she weaves doesn't really quite make sense because if her friends stayed a shut in, then they'd never been friends to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know she wouldn't have that attachment to want to rescue her and use karate to like stop the killer before things happen. Like it's it's kind of this, it's kind of full of wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when she realizes that ultimately as much as sad as the outcome was if she didn't ever meet you know the uh, kimono in person and drew manga with her and spent all that time with her they would never have these moments of joy sharing and you know the fact that kimono basically pushed her to be better you know mm-hmm. it was kind of like what we talked about in blank canvas right where Fujino's basically, you know, she's kind of getting a little bit of a big head. Everyone says, oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so good. And then yep. this other girl who's the same age as her just blows her out of the water as being a really good artist. And it hurts her ego. Mm-hmm. And but, but that hurt then turns into, I'm going to be better. I'm going to study. I'm going to make draw. And then at a certain point, she it comes sixth grade graduation. And she's still, she's gotten better, obviously. But Komodo is still leap years ahead of her. And she thinks, why, why, why? You know, I work so hard. She goes to Komodo's house to drop off the diploma. And she sees that while Fujino had like maybe two stacks of sketchbooks at the end of that, that Komodo had a whole hallway full of stacks of sketchbooks. And then she comes to this realization like, oh, it wasn't like she was more gifted or luckier than me or whatever. She worked hard. She worked incredibly hard, yeah. So it's and then, and then she was still so humble, right? Because she said, "Oh, I'm your biggest fan." Yeah. <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the sadness of the of the whole the tragedy at the end. Yes, that's very that is very heartrending. But the beginning part really got to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The beginning part really got to me when it it was this moment of, you know, that moment of ego and feeling threatened and like inspired to be to work harder to be better and then throughout Fujino you know I think she still has these moments of ego right like it's her name on front on the on them all the manga that they panned in even though you know Kimoto is the is the background artist and Mm -hmm. she's the one who decides to go on to a manga career and then she gets kind of frustrated at Fujino at Kimoto when she goes to art school like ha you know you'll never be you know you should stick with me and I'll take care of you. Like she's still kind of cocky and stuff like that. So the mm-hmm. flashback mm-hmm. moment to me is that moment when she realizes the value of that friendship. and She, she stops being so egotistical about it or, and she realizes what she lost. 
but mm-hmm. also comes to peace with. It's a gr- it's yeah. a growing up moment, and I think that's really lovely. But also, you know, there's sadness, right? Because you feel sad for the fact that Kimoto like got killed at the prime of her life, at at the yeah. cusp of all this possibility. You know, she didn't even graduate art school, <laughs> so you know that's fr- that's so sad, right? That, yeah. and, and you feel that for Kyoto Animation, where there were so many young women who worked at Kyoto Animation, you know, yep. who died, and you know, the loss of this this potential, this loss of these these young people's, uh, you know, future out, output, future growth, and future impact on the world is lost. That's that's the tragedy in addition to the loss of the life. Mm-hmm. I think the creator did a really good job at taking that tragedy and making you care about two people. Because when you hear like eleven people died, like that's awful, but it starts to get into it, it was to get into news territory. You know what I mean? Like it's thirty six. Yeah. Oh, it was thirty six. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, oh no, but this one person died, and then all of a sudden, and here we're going to tell you all about that person. You really make them care in a way that, and then they stand for all of those people that passed away. I think that yeah. that's really that's a good good piece bit of comic making chip did, is that sort of does that sum up <laughs> those two slightly disparate takes sum up your your thoughts on on the ending as well i mean you're all wrong but i mean i respect your opinion <laughs> oh thank you <laughs> yeah no 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 it it, it it all makes sense like i yeah I, I i do feel it it's all in her head even to the point that the the comic that says it was done by Kimoto was actually done by her as if she was Kimoto, Mm. like her imagining that that's that comic sums up her imaginings on paper. It's like, she just, she drew that to be like, Oh, this is what should have happened. Mm. Yeah. That should have been me that that took the, the, the pickaxe to the back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the super sad scene was after when she walks into the into the the room and sees all the shark kick books there. Like, yeah, like that's yeah that that really that really hit me. Mm-hmm. She was still her biggest fan. Yeah, filling out reader yeah. response cards and also not knowing anything about Chainsaw Man. Shark kick sounds an awful lot like Chainsaw Man. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is sort of an amalgamation of Chainsaw Man and his previous series, Fire Punch. Fire Punch? <laughs> yeah. How does somebody that do Chainsaw Man and Fire Punch do this? This is amazing. Right? That's why. That's why I was so shocked. I guess it's, yeah. <laughs> but I would actually, on the shocking point, not the shocking point, Chris, you said there's a risk with doing stories like this. There really is. I, th- I don't think there's a risk with this type of story like this at all. But I think really? if this were... Naruto coming to terms with it or something like that, there would definitely be a risk. But this is such, even though you don't know anything about the creator or the person or even necessarily the tragedy that they're referencing, you can tell this is a personal work. Yeah. And there's so little here. Like, obviously, the book will be put up for sale at some point. And, you know, it already is in Japan. It already is. Yeah. Maybe proceeds go to KyoAni or maybe they don't. But this is something someone made because they had to make it, you know? Yeah, it feels like that. Yeah. It feels like that to me anyway. Like they had yeah. to make this this thing happen. Just like uh, like Frank Miller and Holy Terror. Exactly. <laughs> he, he just yeah, that had could never to do wrong, it, right? But you want to know the best part about that is that started as a Batman book, and that's oh, probably I know. why it's so messed up. 
is I that know. he was capitalizing on it instead <laughs> of, you know, this is like, they yeah. probably lost friends or colleagues or something like that. And this is like an expression yeah. of grief, but also an expression of coming to terms with that grief. And that mm-hmm. feels different than a tragedy happened and we're going to talk about it for a little bit, yeah. you know? And I think where this excels is that it actually like really nails the jump vibe. Did this run on jump plus you said? Yeah, it was uh, jump I've got to stop asking you questions about my job. I, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Gee, you're not keeping up with 400 new pages yeah. of Mongo a week on, uh, sorry, over a thousand across all of the very various jumps. Every yeah. Week? Yeah. David, we um, don't expect you to be a jump expert. <laughs> but I try. I built a brand. But there's so much jump in this. You know, this is yeah. friendship, effort, and victory. You know, the friendship is what kept them making comics. The effort is what made them better at comics. And the victory is that they became pros at, as teens, like Jim Shooter's age, you know? Yeah. And that's not something that happens very often. He actually made his debut at age 19. Even Cut, better. Yeah. So yeah, this is a... Yeah. One of the things we haven't discussed is this is heavily autobiographical. There's like a meta level to all of this where... You know, Fujimoto sensei <laughs> who did this, Kyomoto being the name of the group that the two characters do their manga together as is not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And and so you're it is an experience it is an expression of grief and an expression of like, what would I have done if I could have been there? Like how could I have changed the outcome of this? How could I have saved these people? That that in, and it gets into Again, it could I still think that this could go deeply wrong. I think this could have been holy terror y and I'm <laughs> so I hadn't even thought about that, but my God, I'm like, glad it didn't go back. <laughs> no, it's fine. Put it in the show notes, like, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? I'm not. No. <laughs> but I do, I do think, I do, I'm someone who replays conversations and situations in my head a lot. And I think of ways that I could have done better, or I think of things that could have gone better. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who obviously was, is in the same boat, but decided to like turn that into a manga. And I think that that's intense i wonder is that something chip you're a working comic artist and writer is that something that you've like ever done with your comics is like try to write a wrong from your real life on the pages of a comic book because i know that a lot of comic creators in the more alternative sphere do exactly that i mean this is a little known fact about me but there there was a, a guy who broke into my house and murdered my uncle ben Mm, I remember that. I did let him get away. <laughs> you thought the best way to do it would be to have Daredevil beat up criminals for the rest of time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. That sounds cathartic. I, I mean, if if I have it so subconscious, it would. It, I'd need somebody else to point it out to me. Okay. You know? Yep. I've done it intentionally in prose before. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah? It didn't... I was too green of a writer to pull it off. Like I sat down to edit it and I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll keep these characters and junk everything else. But it was more, I had this idea of what if this group of like, not Black Panthers, but Black Panther-ish people from the 80s went back to 1840s Oakland and colonized it before America did. Hmm. Like made deals with like the Spanish and like the the, uh, Ohlone population that was here. And then when the Americans come, they've got all these guns from the 80s and they basically make like, a paradise in California. Amazing. It was very intentionally trying to upset like the history of colonization in America. Like I did so much research for this story that I completely whiffed on. Yeah. 
<laughs> and a lot of it, like some of it was subconscious, like Chip was saying, like I, you know, there were things that popped up as I was writing that I hadn't been thinking about, but it had been kind of in my heart, I suppose. Yeah. But I think for something like this, it's probably very intentional. Like it's gotta be, I mean, I guess it obviously is. And I think that's the difference in quality is like, they clearly thought about every level of this. Yeah. And even yeah. when like, this is their version of writing a wrong. I think that there's not actually a wrong righted because the coincidence it takes is so large that it never goes beyond being a fantasy. Like she goes, she does karate one town over. She saw someone on her run with a weapon and knew that it was a weapon and not just a tool and then ran to the school and saved the day. And that's like, so out there that I'm not like, I think it's definitely like a kind of processing but I think it's a kind of processing where you're like, oh, this is the fantasy that would never happen. Like, this is what it. This is fantasy fantasy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Actually, I have the perfect example. There's an episode of Justice League that adapted for the man who has everything. The Alan Moore, okay. Dave Gibbons story with yeah. the, yeah. was it the mercy flower or something like that? Anyway, it gets on Batman and the flower gives you your greatest fantasy forever, no matter how unlikely. And his is watching his dad beat up muggers who killed his family for like, I guess, eternity. Like whenever they flash back <laughs> Batman, his dad is just throwing punches. Completely yeah. unrealistic, but it's kind of what you want in your heart because your heart doesn't really care about like feasibility. Yeah. Sure. You know, your because heart is he like, was, oh, he was, I a little, he was a little boy. And that's exactly. a little boy's fantasy. And like a jump kick, like a rider kick to save your friend's life, that is maybe the greatest fantasy in the world. But yes. it's always going to be a fantasy, you know? And so I think that what follows what follows the fantasy is her sitting and accepting the reality that her friend is gone now. But even yeah. though her friend is gone, her friend left a huge impact. Hmm. Yep. I a thing I liked about this was that it didn't it tried really hard not to spoon feed you everything. It was told in a lot of moments, little things that you'll pick up through watching. Like when she shows up to her friend's house at the end, it's clearly she's in funeral wear. She's come after the funeral, but you don't need to see the, like, you know what I mean? Like you get one shot of the funeral, that sort of thing at the shrine. And that's just one example of like, you don't need to have extraneous conversations. You don't need to have tons of extra dialogue. And it was one of the things that I really appreciated this. And it's one of the things that really made it stand out, especially on the week that, you know, you're reading. You're reading all the new Shonen Jump chapters that have come out on, you know, viz.com slash Shonen Jump that week. And this is like, this almost isn't like, it's almost as different from the Shonen Jump manga as manga is from American comics, I feel, in terms of what mm. it's trying to convey. And one of the biggest things is it doesn't, it isn't spoon feeding anything. It's not mm, right at the end. So why did you draw comics? They're so hard. And instead of answering the question, it just shows beautiful scenes of these two girls having fun together reading manga and it's clear that she made comics for her friend to enjoy and to work with but it could have absolutely had a caption that said i made them for her and that would have helped, yeah. like it could have ended that way <laughs> and the whole story the, the whole story you could ins- there could be a narrative like a, or a, a series of captions inserted on this that just is explaining and explaining and explaining the whole time and that's one of the things i really liked is that you know it is you can follow it but there's room for people to have different takes on what's going on. And I think mm-hmm. that that was, that is something you don't see in a lot of, frankly, in a lot of commercial comics, like on any side of the Pacific. And it's one of the things I appreciated. 
Yeah. I'm going to say something unheretical about here. This is that I think there's some real there's some real value in having an, an artist writer being the one person. Is that heretical? Now I know what question we're going to ask in the Q and A this week? That's perfect. I feel like that's a great point because it's yeah. like the, if it was a writer, the writer would feel like compelled to have words on every page to have the words, you know, convey what the picture is saying, and, a, and an artist will just say, you know what, the picture is saying that. I need to say yeah. nothing more. I don't need mm-hmm. to use prose to explain. And we laughed together and we had so much fun together. And I learned so much from her, you know, all these internal dialogue type things. Every bit of those last pages, even even up to the end, there is no internal dialogue. It is just her picking herself up, walking to the door, changing her, you know, next she's in her studio and she's back drawing. There is no, mm-hmm. there's no final words. The, the, the images do the storytelling without any mm-hmm. words. And I think it, that would be harder to pull off if it was a writer-artist. Yeah, it's, it's not impossible. Like on Sex Criminals with Matt, there were, there were a few times where I was like, after drawing something, I'd be like, we don't actually need the words for this panel or this page, which is always a weird conversation to have with <laughs> the writer. But I'm just like... <laughs> But the and, words aren't their writing, I think, is what people miss a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. And I, I think I would always just say it to Matt as, as like, we don't have to Stan Lee this one. Mm. Which is, like, in, <laughs> in, in, in the early Mar- Marvel comics, like, Stan Lee would tell you what's happening in the panel, even though you're looking at the panel. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes you, just, you, don't, you don't need both of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, this is... But, yeah, this, this is obviously a much higher level than me asking Matt to not have captions on a page. <laughs> the repeated motifs, right? Where the repeated motifs of this person's back yeah. on, in, in front of a table and then everything, the things around them change, like the weather changes, their, their posture changes, their furniture, you know, and it shows the passage of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was wondering, is, is the, is that title look back kind of a, a, a nod to the fact that, most of the pa- a lot of the panels are just looking at her back. I think the title came first. Did you? I guess you guys didn't catch it, eh? Mm. What? What? All right, everyone, flip to page two or page one after the title page. Ooh, okay. It's the teacher holding up a piece of paper. All right, folks. Which you would think are the first let- first words in the book, but actually, in the upper right hand corner, there's the word "don't" written on the chalkboard. Oh. Now everyone, flip to the last page. And look at the bottom left-hand corner. A little book there. Oh, in anger. I knew this. I totally forgot that it was Don't Look Back at Me. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. It's named after an Oasis song. (laughs) Say what? It's named after an Oasis song, Don't Look Back in Anger, which was in... Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't catch that at all. Oh, that's wonderful. And he hit it right in plain sight. And I, I can't take credit for that. I didn't notice it either. I was going to say, that's a hard one to notice. Yeah, that was a real hard one to notice. I, did, I was doing research and someone on Japanese Twitter found it a couple hours after the, the strip was posted. Some like Fujimoto super fan who was scrutinizing every, like I actually usually do that too. Where I zoom in and look at like every title on a bookshelf. And I know you love Jip putting that kind of detail oh, yeah. into pages yeah. and stuff too. But I never do it in a smart way. So yeah. Don't look back in anger. I think there's a really good tradition, and please don't ask for examples. I'll put them in the show notes when I have time to actually do research. But I think it's a really good tradition of song lyrics inspiring 
short personal comics like this that have that goes through it sort of weaves itself through comics because it's it's weird and this is like maybe this is me talking but it's so hard sometimes when you're like making comics or thinking about comics it, it's to incorporate real life things into them I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain it but like music is especially difficult because music can you know disappear so quickly and you know be popular one moment and the next minute not very popular but you and you look back at comics especially if you're reading like a marvel app or something like that that are dated to like a moment or a time because there's like the, the writer mentions offhandedly a, a song that was popular at the time and you're like oh my god spider-man liked such and such that's gross like <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he know what happened with bieber and it's just it's it's interesting there was that, that year where spider-man mentioned in every issue r kelly and he regrets it he regrets it trapped in the closet i mean it's a metaphor for spider-man it really is don't think about it too hard but yeah i think that 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 actually really sold it i like actually kind of loved that because it was like oh that's yeah, this is exactly the like naming something after a song that was really important to you at a certain time in your life is such an important rite of passage for an artist, frankly, <laughs> that I think it's really cool. I thought it was really cool anyway. Yeah. I think that all the shots of the artist keeled over at the desk or, or what, what do I say? Curled up at the desk, let's say, working on it in the shot of their back probably came from the title and not the other way around. But I, you know, we can't know that for sure. It's really funny, Chris, pointing out creators and naming their titles after like 90 songs or whatever considering you are a character in scott pilgrim <laughs> 90 song if i'm not mistaken by Plumtree. can't believe it took us 38 episodes to mention that <laughs> yeah. man so i've got one of those tricky i notice things points too and this Ooh. is kind of building on the shonen jump point you know a lot of it's very like hyper masculine battle manga and there's this mm-hmm. trope you know like watch my back and you'll get better. You'll grow stronger yeah. or whatever, whatever. It shows up in this as well. But the implication is that the person in front of you is a shield. Like they'll protect you from whatever is coming and you'll have the space to grow. Yeah. And on page 83, you know, she says, keep your eyes on my back and you'll grow too. So she's growing alongside you. And then the very last few pages are you watching her back as she goes to do what she's meant to do, which is getting back to her life and making comics. And I thought that was very touching and kind of more of a subtle jump metaphor way. Like there's, there's an emotional range in jump comics. I think that is a big reason why they're so popular. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the way they address grief and fear and anger, like there's actually, I don't want to call it wisdom because it's comics for children, but there's like a lesson in there you can pick up on and kind of latch onto if you need a little bit of strength. And this Mm -hmm. takes those same lessons and gives it to adults. I think like sometimes you need to see someone else going about their life in order to get back on your feet. Sometimes you need space to get back on your feet. You need someone to stand in front of you and watch their back for a little while, while you figure out what you need to do. And the last, like, what is it? Four panels are just her back as she leaves her friend's apartment. Like she walks down a dusty country road and then she's at her Cintiq and then her terrible posture on the last page is so realistic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it was very touching. Like as a as a shonen action manga fan, like there are these little tropes and motifs that you pick up on, and it's rare to see it in books about normal people, you know, human beings instead of heroes. But it works because it all comes from the same emotional core, which is sort of we're all in this together. Mm. And there's no getting out of this alone. Like you always you hopefully, you know, 
you'll have someone beside you that can kind of pull you along when you need to be pulled and you can pull them along when they need to, need to be pulled. I was kind of baiting you all, hoping that especially David would call me on my shit saying that this wasn't like a Shonen Jump manga because I think this is very much actually like a Shonen Jump manga. I think it's both. Emotionally. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, I think artistically and I think the way that he's telling the story, absolutely he's trying to do something very different. But emotionally, it's this idea of what's a what's the good reason to do something like it's the good reason to make art what's the good reason mm-hmm. to do anything and money friendship. baby money yeah exactly <laughs> like you know they they talk about money a little bit and how it's nice but like they couldn't even spend there's this that scene where they couldn't even spend all the money they took out to go and blow as much money as they could think of they spent the equivalent of 50 bucks yeah yeah, yeah. It's like, oh my I god it was the, the best day like, or if you get a thousand dollars you could buy a house and it's like not exactly but yeah, it's just this idea of like, why did you make money? Why did you make manga? And it's why does she quit manga? And why does she start t- doing manga again at the beginning? And it's just this idea of like, what is a pure like? There's what is a pure idea of wanting to make of do things or make things? And I think that that's really interesting. I think that comes from a very shonen jump place. A lot of manga artists talk about how they are, you know, coming up or when they're coming up, they want to be in a certain magazine because the not just the work that's there, but the ideology of the work that's in that magazine resonates with them. Some people Mm -hmm. want to be in jump because jump speaks to them. Some people want to be, you know, big comics or spirits artists one day. Some people want to be in uh, afternoon or I always wanted manga erotics F personally, but like, yeah, that's, I've literally, (laughs) all right. Subtle flex. Deb and I have actually been in the pages of manga erotics F. Really? Yeah. What? Um, Natsume Ono Natsume Ono did a comic strip about coming to TCAF in 2012 or 2011. Of course. <laughs> and she drew me and she drew Deb. She drew Jocelyn. <laughs> I think she drew Layla. Yeah, it was it's no like big deal. Yeah. The highlight of my life, but I you can't talk about it all the time. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm telling you. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, longer erotic stuff. That, that was such a neat it was such a neat moment. But yeah, I think there's something really jump about this and that's the other thing that like almost everyone reads jump growing up in japan and now almost everyone's reading jump here in north america too so if you're going to tell a story that is a mature adult story about grief but you infuse it with the emotions and the feelings and the lessons as david says of shonen jump yeah it's gonna fucking resonate (laughs) like especially hard with jump people with jump fans and i think that's a big deal it's like they did it if they did a story about spider-man's parents getting divorced like it would be devastating you know right? it would just kill <laughs> oh my god ship what are you even doing with your life that you haven't written in elseworld <laughs> peter parker's t- or sorry what if peter parker's parents get divorced i mean they used to do they used to have those types of stories right i mean everyone would talk about you know like like the first time gene gray died that people were devastated right the yeah. first time <laughs> and then and then they cheapened just, it you just, you just summed it. up everything wrong with north american comics by saying <laughs> The first time Jean Grey died. Yeah. And it's kind of tough, right? Because that kind of heartfelt storytelling is really hard to pull off. Because you can either take it the wrong way and it becomes maudlin and cheesy. Mm -hmm. Or it, you know, misses the mark. But this seems, I think the reason why a lot of manga creators were reacted so much to that is they recognize how difficult this was to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just beautifully, and then like, Visually, the pacing, the the way that the, the the story unfolds, there's not a lazy moment in his. It's it has mm. a lovely beat and feeling to it. You know, versus being serialized, right? It was it was all released at once. Mm-hmm. 
you see this complete expression in one 140-page exposure to it. There's no, continue mm. next week. You know, it's like, no, you are in, once you strap in to ride on page one, you are in until page, one page 140. And it's kind of, it's rare to see that. And, and then yeah. we just have to wait for the sequel. Oh, please, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I have a weird hunch about this. While Deb was talking, I wanted to flip through and find some scenes. And I don't think there's any scenes where someone is drawing and talking at the same time. Oh. Mm. When they're at the desk, they're always silent. When they're sharing art, they're silent. Like they'll talk about the work they're doing with the editor. Yeah. But it it makes me feel like they treat like the space where you draw, the space where you create as sacred. Pages 72 and 73 mirror, you know, the last page of the story. It's the same shot, the same angle. Her hair is different. Her outfit's like slightly different. I think she's wearing a different jacket than one. But it's always like when there's comics happening, like focus on her back. Like, look what she's doing. Look what she's drawing. Yeah. And it's really cool. I, we, t- before the podcast, before we started recording, we were talking about how I've been building model Gundams. And part of that for me is I live in Oakland and East Oakland and in a small apartment. So I can't have a huge space to do stuff, you know? And yeah. so I've had to really strategize and like really use my space efficiently. And so thinking about a workspace as a place that's yours, you know, like, you know, maybe your dad had a spot in his garage that was his thing. Yeah. Like, it's very special, like everything in its right place. And it's really cool that the mangaka did this and like, did it like that so that whenever, I don't know, comics are really cool. It's my favorite storytelling form and it's cool to see it treated like as sacred. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask everybody to go to the chat window for a sec. I linked to a comic that this actually, we talk about what, you know, what North American comics does this make you think of? And this is the one I immediately thought of. And it's a comic by Seth called Down the Stairs. And it ran as a one-page comic in a magazine called The Walrus in Canada, Canadian literary magazine. We'll take a short break that David will hopefully edit out while everyone reads the comic. <laughs> That's lovely. Classic Seth. Yeah. <laughs> so I read this the first time way back when it came out, and I found it to be a bit of a downer. <gasps> included in the show notes. And it's just this idea of, I think he's trying to communicate the overwhelming monotony of making comics, but also the compulsion to keep making comics even when things aren't great or even and the regularity of making comics and the difficulty of making comics and all those kinds of things that are like, not necessarily, I saw them as very negative emotions at the time, but I think now I maybe look at them as more, it's neutral emotions. It's, it's something that, something that happens when making comics is a calling, or maybe rather for you than necessarily a job that you can clock in, in and then clock out of. Seth lives the life and walks the walk, let's say. So I got, a lot of sense of that in in look back this idea that you know it started from a very sort of selfish unpure point as a kid of wanting to be the best and wanting that to be lauded for your work and then turned into something that you just have to do um, even when you could have stopped or even when your friends abandon doing what you're doing for something else and even when something tragic happens you go back you just go back to the studio and you keep working and you keep working and you keep working is that good or bad? <laughs> it's not a given, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, not I, everyone keeps going. Yeah. I, 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 think I didn't. 
I think it's almost funny. I think one has to precede the other to actually kind of be successful at something. You kind of need the ego of it. I think we talked a mm. bit about this with the blank canvas mm. where you, you kind of need the ego and a little bit of like praise and adulation, whether it's deserved or not to like go, Oh, I like this feeling. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of get, you kind of get hooked on the act of it at some point. And so mm-hmm. when you mature and get older, it becomes less about ego and becomes more about just you have to do it. You have to like work at your craft. I mean, there can are you, obviously there are obviously artists and that. writers out there who you know never quite got past the ego stage. I'm not going to name any names. This isn't <laughs> that kind of a podcast. But for the most part, they don't tend to get better <laughs> at their <Yeah>. jobs, <laughs> right? Or their work yeah. doesn't become better art as a result of it. Uh, I went through a similar evolution as a writer. You know, I like I got my first paid gig in like 2003 or something, just barely into college and super arrogant about it. It's like a garbage video game review. But for a long time, it was about competition for me. Like, oh, I want to mm-hmm. be better than X. Yeah. And now that I'm older, it's like, I don't care about them. And also, they're not that good. I just <laughs> want to be, I want I want my clarity to be on point. I want everyone who reads whatever I write to get exactly what I meant. Or maybe not exactly what I meant, but to get something out of it. You know? Yeah. At least at least the smart people get exactly what you meant. Yeah. Maybe the beautiful people. I'll allow the, that the as beautiful, well. Exactly. <laughs> but the Ugg mugs and the dummos, no thank you. Ugg <laughs> <laughs> mugs and the dummos. But there's really there's a thing where your art come like your motivation comes from inside you or from outside. You know, yeah. some people are like, oh, I'm powered by spite. And I'm like, I can't, I don't have the energy for that anymore. I'm powered by wanting to tell you about this cool thing that I found. And one's not necessarily better than the other, but like I've definitely settled into one as being more natural for me, I think. I think I've Hmm. probably mentioned it on this podcast before. Uh, We've done so many of these. that All my stories are kind of colliding in my head. But when I was starting out as an illustrator, there was a newspaper of record here in Canada, the Globe and Mail. And on the back of their front section, they would have a thing called Facts and Arguments, which was like an essay that was mm-hmm. always reader submitted and then an illustration to accompany it. And because it, it ran five days a week, a lot of the illustrations weren't necessarily of the best quality. Mm. And so <laughs> where all my classmates were putting up beautiful pieces of work at their workstations and their drawing tables, I was cutting out the worst illustrations <laughs> from this <laughs> newspaper. and was putting them out going, oh, come on, I'm better than this. <laughs> Like, <laughs> but they're getting paid for it, right? I know, yeah. I know. And it's like <laughs> that was my first paying gig. Like, it it wasn't spite, but it was just like, I know I'm not the best, but I know I'm not the worst. Sometimes <laughs> that's enough to grow on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I submitted it, and it was like it was perfect timing. It was like the editor's first day on the job. Was told to get new illustration. The reception area didn't know what illustration was so didn't send me to the art director sent me to the editor (laughs) like everything collided so perfectly it's probably the most perfect thing that ever happened in my life (laughs) in which she was like oh yeah no i I need portfolio send me your portfolio like and you had to physically send a portfolio so i'm just like oh my god like i'm putting together this thing while in school and i got this gig and it was just like like oh two of those gigs paid my rent like it was just the best job my rent wasn't (laughs) very much at the time 
And yeah. then I passed the info to all my friends who lived in the house with me, who are also illustrators. And we all got work from this person for like five years. Wow. It was the best. And it all stemmed from me looking at bad illustrations and being like, I can do better <laughs> than this. Mm-hmm. So it was like ego, but it was just like such a low ego. Like jump. petty ego? Yeah. Petite yeah. ego? Petite ego. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you. I mean, I don't... I remember when I was I, when I was a freelance illustrator in Hawaii, like people would go, "How come you get all these gigs?" Right? It's like because you don't get any gigs for the jobs you don't apply for. Mm, yeah. yeah, just like Wayne Gretzky said. <laughs> it's exactly so. Yes, <laughs> thank you, Canada. <laughs> this is like we always talk about Bakuman, right? As this manga about making manga. But mm-hmm. it, it's so problematic. Yeah. I I would say read this instead, and you'll get the same vibe. What's problematic about it? I don't know. It's super sexist. <laughs> yeah, it's super sexist, and it is like it kind of advocates working yourself into the hospital for manga, like literally, like hurting yourself for manga, putting everything else in your life aside and only focusing on manga in like a consistent advocacy way right through the end. It's fascinating and we should totally read it one day maybe we should have paired it with this and, yeah yeah maybe yeah, maybe perfect. but i was just gonna say like you know because everyone says oh you know manga about making manga and then that's they say oh go read balkaman it's like no no i'll read this you'll save a lot of time and it'll be good <laughs> <laughs> and you'll feel good after you're finished <laughs> yeah. not that balkaman isn't you know interesting in its own way i learned a lot about the shonen manga making process same same i thought it was you know interesting but you know this i think was just there was a lot of really sharply sharply observed moments like you know when like on page 17 with the the classmates says aren't you getting too old for drawing when you draw in middle school Mm. people think you're a creepy otaku Mm -hmm. that 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 hit me <laughs> that was like, oh yeah. And then there was a part like, you know, I make a living teaching grown-ups how to draw for yeah. business. Because yeah. and what I learned is most of grown-ups give up drawing at around after elementary school. Or they start telling themselves they're not talented. They they don't have it. They I can't draw a straight line. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I'm serious, I have to teach these people how to draw. Because yeah. it, they've shut, they've shut it off, and they've told themselves this is something that is out of their reach. That only special people can do it. Only talented people can do it. But this is this type of visual communication should be part of everyone's life. I think. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of like, like I oft I always get it at comic conventions. People will always come up and be like, "Oh wow, you know, good drawing. I used to draw." That like, breaks well, my yeah. heart. <laughs> we we all used to draw, and then for the most part, they all gave it up around like eight, nine, ten years old. And it's yeah. the it's the age where when you when you can look at your drawing and you know something's wrong. Because mm. before mm. that point, you don't know something's wrong. You've drawn stick figures uh, of your family, and it's like, look, mommy, this is you. This is you. You are that. Photo <laughs> realistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But as soon as, as soon as a character is like, or, or, or an artist is, is trying to draw like a human eye, and they're drawing like, you know, the pupils and the iris, and they're like, and the eyelashes. That's the point where where almost everyone gives up because 
their understanding of what it's supposed to look like has evolved, but their ability to do it has not. Yeah. That's a really painful gap. That's yeah. a that's a really painful gap when you'd realize what what good is. Yeah. And how far you are from it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Crucial though. But it's yeah. funny you say that because I quit drawing. I was seventeen or eighteen. In high mm-hmm. school, I was on, I might have said this on the show before, I was on, I was on an art school track. And oh, I, I was like, that. oh, writing is way easier than drawing. I'm just going to be an English major. And yeah. so I did. This was seriously my train of thought, like a clown at senior year. But I then made the horrible mistake of then studying art really closely for like the next 10 years. Yeah. So now the gap between what's good and what I can do is, I don't know, like mm. from the sun to Pluto. Yeah, yeah. But I still know that if I need to, like, you know, as an editor, sometimes I'll need to draw thumbnails to get, like, the point across or for balloon placements or something like that. Like, I can still whip that out really easily because I still have the basics, but I don't show people my drawings necessarily, you know? Mm. Yeah. I've not seen your drawings and I've not seen Chris's drawings. I'll send you, I did one of those six fan arts memes a while back. Did you really? Years ago. Oh, yeah, it see. was super dumb. I'll, I'll find it and dig it up and you can put it in the show notes, Chris. That's very. That's awesome. I think inspired by this episode. That's very brave of you. Yeah. I'll see if I can. I haven't drawn anything in a while, but I'll see if I can find something that I'm not too embarrassed. What I would like to see is since I had to draw everyone for our manga explaining banner and yeah graphics, I would like to see all of you try and draw me. Ooh, let's do this. Let's do this. Okay. Okay. Chris thought about that a lot, so there's something's going to go down here. (laughs) <laughs> no don't put any pressure on my <laughs> terrible drawings it's, it's already bad caricature yeah. artists love my face they there's i mean you could go so many different ways with there's so many ways you <laughs> could go with this but i think this podcast is a good example of one of the themes of look back which is that like comic books are really cool and they really bring people together in an intimate way that mm. maybe other mediums might do in a different manner yeah. But like there's such an immediacy to comics. You know, this you said this came out two years after the tragedy, but I bet the idea came a lot sooner, you know? Oh yeah. You know, Absolutely. something that was percolating in his head. I think he went to that art school. Oh really? In okay. Yamagata. And then I mean so that it's it's I think it's it's based on a real place, but I don't think that real incident happened. No. I'm gonna say something really dense, right? I didn't mm-hmm. I did not make the connection between this story and Kyoto animation until I looked started looking it up Mm. like i just took i took it at face value as being an interesting fictional story about about making comics about you know about about ego and about growing up and about tragedy and regrets i didn't take it as a as a tribute comic because it was never said so in in the book in the comic when you read it by itself you have to do a little googling and then it pops up but maybe that's why it works I was just going to say, maybe that's why it's not risky or it doesn't feel risky to me, I should say. Yeah. Like there's no, th- there's nothing at the end that's dedicated to the, you know, the lives lost, that killed the enemy, nothing, no yeah. hint, no hint whatsoever that, that, that that's mm. a connection. And, yeah. you know, being in America, right? Like I don't have that. I didn't have that automatic. Like it wasn't on the news. Okay. It wasn't like on the news yeah. saying, this is a second anniversary of the Kyoto animation fire. Like, yeah. so I just went about my day to day life read the story and thought, oh wow this is really good mm-hmm. but i had i did not make the connection and maybe that mm-hmm. frees this to be you know and I, I think it's beautiful that you could you, i could appreciate it and love it and feel moved by it 
with even without that. It's a really good thought, Deb. Does anyone have any more final thoughts on this? Or uh, I'm great following that. Great, great lettering. Great, great lettering. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I quite liked it. I, there was, and there was a page. I think it was page nineteen, where I really appreciated the layering of the balloons and the text. Oh. Yeah, it's oh, just, yeah. I mean, it's well thought out. It's well integrated into the artwork, into the panels throughout the story. And it's a, it's a, it's a nice font. Nice, like, it's all really well done. Yeah, this was probably produced in about a week. If it, go, if it was on a regular Shonen Jump schedule, I don't know. I don't have any specific info, but like the retouch, the lettering, the script was probably produced very quickly oh. for us. Yeah. And it's a wonder that it comes out. Not a wonder. It's amazing that it comes out so well, you know? Yeah. Huge credit to the translator and the letter on that one. Yeah. Uh, Amanda Haley and Snare Araharan. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Because there's a lot in here, like chalkboards and the hand drawn. Yeah, they translated manga. that whole chalkboard, actually, yeah. Yeah. when they graduate middle school. I noticed that and I was really blown away by it. Chalkboards, yeah. historically, a nightmare. Because <laughs> there's like several tones, there's like a gradient, there's all these things you have to match. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. So my final thought is like all around, like the localization team and you know fujimoto since and the jump editorial like they nailed it this is a really good book yeah great so eisner voters you you have been given notice <laughs> Deb yeah, don't, make you you. don't make us come get you make us come get you is short story the same as single issue no okay good because i'm submitting the single issue so i don't want to <laughs> this. edit all this out it's too much <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep the note where you say edit it all out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just super cut of Chris saying edit it all out. That's pretty good. That's good. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Manga Splaining on Look Back by Tatsuki Fujimoto. We'll be right back after the break with a little bit of reader QA. Stay tuned. Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome back. Hope that was a nice break. I listened to the podcast just today and didn't get any ads. So if you're one of the people like me who don't get ads, you're very lucky. You just get to listen to the music. But that does bring us to this week's reader Q and A. I actually picked this one because it was inspired by something Deb said when we were when we were chatting here on the podcast. And that is, oh, sorry, it's from Ali jo- Joseho Joseso. I apologize on Instagram who wrote in and asked, is there a general reason why mangaka mostly do the art as well as the script? I rarely see this in North American comics, mostly in indie comics. Is it mainly because the writer simply doesn't know how to illustrate? But it's basically, why are most mangaka single single creator mangaka as opposed to being artistic teams like they are in a lot of Western comics? I think that's a really interesting question. I know I have my thoughts on the mangaka side of things. 
Deb, David, do you have your thoughts on why you think most mangaka are, are, are auteurs, are single, single person creators? I don't know a hot take way, a non hot take way to say this. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like the perfected form of a comics creative team is just one person doing like the story that's in their head. And collaboration is great. It's, it's a different kind of thing, different kind of like thrill for me. And I think that having just one person means like everything is so much more like to one specific goal. Well, with collaboration, it's a bunch of goals coming together. They feel different. And when you have just one person kind of jamming, like, I don't know, you can make some really special books. But David, you're also a writer who has worked with artists. Yeah, it's hilarious, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I think I really think from, you know, even something like Weapon X, I think Barry, did Barry Windsor Smith have a colorist on that? Yeah. You remember? Yeah. I'm, pretty, he, I'm 90% sure. He, he was his own colorist on that. He was his was own? He? I think oh, so. Because that book looks amazing. Yeah. And it's one of those things, I feel like it would be hard to get that look if it was someone you weren't working very closely with. Sometimes you get like a Frank Miller and Lynn Varley or... Um, uh, Matthew Kelly and Richmond Lewis. Mazik, yeah, that one's great. Frank Quietly and is it Jamie Grant, I think, were really good together. Yeah. You get these duos that really, really click. But there's just something different when it's just one person, you know? And speaking as a guy who's written ones of comic books so far, you know, (laughs) it's fun to write and see what the artist does. Like for me, I'm talking to the artist and then they're telling the story that we came up with together. Deb, did you have any thoughts on that? You know, it's because I can draw (laughs) and I can write. I'm comfortable doing both. So it's just econo- it's for me it's economical to just express mm. what 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 I work things out in my head, like the pacing, the right mix of writing and art, how how the story will go. And then versus what when I find when I'm in the illustrator position and someone else is the writer, it's it's complicated, right? Because they're seeing something else in their head. And yeah. I'm having to try to meet that without much guidance (laughs) (laughs) and it's a little frustrating because sometimes i think to myself well well sometimes you feel like like the guidance you get from a writer is this happens on this panel this happens at the top this happens at the bottom da 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 and then i and i don't have that luxury of saying actually i'd like a two-page spread here (laughs) you know to let this moment breathe or can i do this can i express how time is passing in this way Whereas I think sometimes when I work with writers, you know, they become very attached to what the turn of phrase that they've created. And it becomes really hard to tell them, can I just make this wordless or do do we need this part of the story? Can we just skip to this? And, you know, with the, with when I, in my relationship with the, when I work with a writer, I'm usually the illustrator for hire. It's not a, it's not a pure partnership. It's not yeah. like we are creative partners and we equally have a say. I'm my job is to illustrate what what they want and then to use my powers of persuasion to say this I think this way is a good way forward. But I it's not a pure creative partnership where you have equal equal say in how something comes out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like yeah. some some artists, like for example, don't like some manga artists don't feel comfortable writing, right? Like Takeshi Obata drew Death Note. Mm. He's, I was wondering about that. 
he did one story by himself, which was not that great. <laughs> yeah, it was like this old man, old man cyborg <laughs> story. And he basically, when I think when I interviewed him, he basically said, "I just conceded. I don't want to write stories. I just want to draw them." So it it depends on your 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 bent, really. I pres- yeah. I think as an artist, I would I feel more comfortable just drawing what I drawing what I want what I see in my head with you know just some feedback from an editor or some feedback from a friend versus you know being an artist writer combination and then trying to jockey for what needs to be expressed. I mean like even with Death Note, like you'll see uh, Opa Sensei the the writer get do really rough storyboards and pass it mm-hmm. on. Well, so Chip, you're both an artist and a writer. Do you pass on storyboards, rough storyboards, to your artists, collaborators? Normally, no. It has to be kind of an extreme situation for me to do that. There have been moments working at Marvel that I've been paired with like pretty inexperienced artists, which I, I will have to do that to kind of show them a better way to do it or how perspective works or anatomy, stuff like that. But But... For the most part, you kind of have to distance yourself a little bit from it if you are an artist. Like, because the, the first script I wrote for Marvel was was Howard the Duck. It was issue one of that, and it was the first time I'd written for an artist, oh. uh, which was Joe Canonis. And I remember when I got the pages back from Joe, I was just like, "Like what? Like that's not how I was. I would have done it. Like I just kind of was like, oh, okay." This is wrong. <laughs> what you've done is wrong. <laughs> but start over. But wow. They, <laughs> but they but they but they weren't wrong. In in a lot of cases, they were a lot better than <laughs> what I had in my head. But I had to like yeah. really divorce the visual from what I was writing, just to kind of keep my expectations a little bit in check. I mean, like the 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 standard in like kind of the Marvel DC sphere is writer separate from artist but it's also like artist separate from colorist separate from letterers mm-hmm. and that's just a byproduct of the assembly line nature that kind of started decades ago versus manga obviously with the unsung heroes the apprentices yeah it's just a different assembly line yeah which kind of enables the writer artist to like if you're not necessarily oh, drawing yeah. your backgrounds or you're not doing your screen tones or you're not filling in blacks then you actually have time to kind of think about story more, I think mm-hmm. in the, the manga market versus the, the North American comics market. Yeah. 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 It's, I don't know. It's, it's unfortunate. Like I obviously now that I'm kind of writing and drawing a book again, I prefer to do that, but also the assembly line is kind of <laughs> here to stay. And like, if I want to put out more work, then I really can only do that by being a writer on multiple projects because yeah. I can't draw multiple projects. So I kind of, have, I've fallen into the trap that everyone else has fallen into by, by writing for a bunch of different artists. The alchemy that comes with a writer working with an artist or an artist working with an inker or a colorist is really fun. Like it's, you know, like Ed McGinnis and Dexter Vines, I think are a great combo. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. a combo I like more than Ed McGinnis on their, on his own or Dexter Vines on his own. But sometimes you'll get a book where the writer wanted to do one story, the artist wanted to do a different story, and the editor was like, I don't know, bro. And it's a thing of beauty. Like, it's horrible. They're never good comics, but they're always fascinating from a craft point of view. Yeah. Kind of 
figuring out what each different what each per, each person wanted to do with their part of the story, and then why it just clashes and doesn't come together at the end. Yeah, and yeah. it's like that happens with you know cartoonists as well with you know single writer artists because not everybody's good at telling stories, but when it's a bunch of people being bad at telling one story. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, happens a lot. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because I mean, also because in in the Marvel DC realm, like, don't necess- there are there are arranged marriages, mm, right? Yeah. Like they're not <laughs> <laughs> they're not they're not proper dates, courtships. <laughs> you'll just be you'll be set up with somebody. You'll be like, oh, okay, I guess we're working together, and you want to do this, but this is the script. Sometimes there's enough time to change it a little bit. Like, yeah, because sometimes at Marvel or DC, you have to write the story without knowing who the artist is, which is the worst. That's the worst feeling. Mm-hmm. And and there was a case where I'd written three quarters of a Spider-Man annual, and then my editor was like, "Great news, Mike Allred's going to draw this." And I'm <laughs> like, "I'm like, there. That's amazing. There is nothing in here for Mike Allred to draw. Mm. Like the way we know it. I had to like." retroactively put in like a killer robot kind of sci-fi fun thing for him to draw just to make it a like a Mike Allred suited comic. I was lucky yeah. I had enough time or else it would have been a really disappointing comic for him, for me and for the reader. Mm-hmm. Those are the unfortunate situations. Wow. Mm. Sometimes yeah. it's awesome. Do you all know the story about Gil Kane and aliens? No, no. So in the late 90s, Wildstorm was publishing a book. I think it was Wildcats Aliens. It was a crossover between the Jim Lee, Scott Williams property and like the Xenomorphs, like the 20th Century Fox aliens. Sure. And so Scott Dunbeer calls Gil Kane, amazing artist, legend. He's like, listen, we need you to draw the Wildcats fighting an alien. And he does it. And it's not the Xenomorph. It's just an alien. (gasps) Yes. Oh, yes. I I do remember this. (laughs) And I think Kevin Nolan came in after and inked it and yeah. turned it into like a xenomorph, but it's like a a marauding space warrior. <laughs> and it's communication, right? Like they yeah. could have if uh, like I don't think anyone actually made a mistake necessarily, but they didn't have all the information where they needed to get it. And that's the risk yeah. you have of having a team. Huh. While with one person, like they can just mess it up all on their own. Yeah. Yeah. But this yeah. is the fun of comics. Like there's always this kind of alchemy or Pleasant surprise, unpleasant surprise lurking around the corner. Yeah. And I think when you see it in an industry that's mostly cartoonists like manga, like there's something to that. It speaks to the nature of their system, yeah. you know, like how they put comics together, like physically. And I've noticed in the past few years, more and more manga have had like separate writers. Like the guy who wrote Ajin Dimihuman, I think he was an editor slash co-writer. Halfway through mm-hmm. the series, he left and did his own stuff, like his own series, High Rise Invasion, which was much less good. And the anime is even worse. But, you know, that's them's the breaks. Like, that's a risky run doing your own work and branching out with new people. Deb mentioned, I, I don't know the, the mangaka, but I was an artist who wrote their own thing and it was really not. Oh, that Obata. Good. Yeah. Yeah. That's where a great editor comes in handy. Like, like one of my favorite things was my wife is a, was a newspaper editor uh, and a magazine editor. And, one of her issues was like when she was hiring a writer and looking at their samples, she was like, how much of it, this is the editor. <laughs> Cause sometimes it will happen where she'll hire the person and then she'll like get in their first draft of a story and be like, Oh no, they're actually bad, but they worked with great editors. 
and they produce great works. So now yeah. she has to start from the bottom and kind of build this person up again. So they have another perfect piece that gets them the next job. Uh, so like an, an editor can really, really save an artist who maybe doesn't know how to write. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know the story behind Tom McFarlane going off and doing Spider-Man number one for Marvel back in the day. But mm-hmm. as a, as a, a high school student, uh, I could tell it was bad. Like the <laughs> writing. He's talked about it since. Has yeah. He? he says I was interviewed. It was at an image X where I interviewed him about it. And he said that it sucked because it was the first thing he wrote. And he was like, I got better after that. But like, yeah. this was my first thing. And Marvel was dumb enough to trust me with it. That's like giving a teenage driver a Maserati, isn't it? It's like giving a teenage <laughs> driver who's winning a bunch dollars. of street races a Maserati. Because <laughs> like, he'd already sold so many comics. Yeah. You're like, yeah. how bad could it be? I think was probably Marvel's estimation. Yeah, because it was like I mean, people were buying it for the art. Yeah. So it, it didn't much matter to them at the time. But also it was like, I don't know who the editor was on it. And I don't know where McFarlane's ego as a creator was <laughs> yeah. at the time, but you know it could have been salvaged with an editor who had a more hands-on approach. Chris, I want to ask you what your take on this is because you've we've we've kind of elbowed yeah, you sorry. out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's I, I asked. It's good. I, I do think I think the question comes from kind of a flawed place, unfortunately, because it sort of evidences how little we still know about how manga is produced mm-hmm. in North America. And, or how, how we in North America know how a little bit manga is produced, because honestly, there are almost almost no comics that are created by one person. There is a, usually a team of assistants, and usually they're not thanked until the last page of the last volume of the series. And it's a different approach to making comics, where it's sort of like one person is at the top of the pyramid, and then they hire people who hire people who hire people. And it's you know a, a driving force. An auteur who's working like a director on a movie is obviously not also operating the camera and is also probably didn't write it and also probably isn't going and selling the same movie to like movie theaters. Like there's a team there and there's a mm-hmm. team on manga. So it might have one person's name on it, but ex- except in very, very rare circumstances, one person didn't create every piece of a manga. Sometimes it happens for sure, especially in indie manga where there's no money to hire assistants and things like that. So your production just goes way slower yeah, there's just teams of people who work on manga who are not, who are more and more often lately, but not credited in the same way that they would be in North America. Well, here's a, here's a, here's a question then. Yeah. In, within these teams, is there anyone in those teams that is more text-based that helps the mangaka craft the story? The editors editor. usually? Yeah. yeah, editors are much yeah. more powerful and more influential in story crafting manga okay. stories, right? Do a lot of writers also draw their own the storyboard stage, like the early layouts when they're doing their and stories? Because yeah. it's not just a straight script and then you hand it to a guy and he draws it. It's like you draw it and then they take that and draw that. Even if it's just scribbles, but yeah, that the script yeah. is is basically very rough storyboards. A good example of this that you can actually go see is One Punch Man by One, who is the writer, and Yusuke Murata, who's the mm-hmm. illustrator. And One actually did a version of One Punch Man, and still up online, you can go and view it, where he drew everything himself, and he draws in a very, let's say, idiosyncratic style. He's not the best artist, but he drew his, all of his story. And then when they brought it to Shonen Jump, and I think Jump Plus, and made it a series, they brought in Yusuke Murata, who's maybe the best manga artist of like of, <laughs> of all Shonen manga, to take this dude's story 
and redraw it as a shonen jump, you know, shonen jump style manga. And you get to see that like, and even then Murata sensei is like works with assistants. So yeah, maybe he's doing all the layouts and he's drawing all the figures and he's drawing the faces, but he'll have someone else ink it. He'll have someone else do backgrounds based on what he said. Someone else will do tones or whatever, but yeah, it's, it breaks down in a different, a series of different ways. And Murata, I think, I don't know that he's ever written a story, but I know he did Eyeshield 21. I know he's done some other work for hire stuff. Whenever there's Murata's done a bunch of guest pieces and fan pieces that you can, if you're a big fan of Yusuke Murata, there's a lot of art out there. Yeah. Enjoy that is not necessarily tied to any of his series, but yeah, I think it's a real misconception that it's just like, it's one person. It's one creator sort of at the top, but they're working with a lot of people usually. And I've actually even heard of in really complex, let's say, manga studios where there's like a you know a a mangaka a number of assistants if it's big enough if they're doing enough work that mangaka will also have a separate editor that is different than the editor at the magazine who's commissioning them for each individual work and chip is the person i know of in north america that has someone like that like chip has an editor now that, that he works with are we we allowed to say who it is is that a is that a private yeah no no it's a allison o'toole but she strictly edits my creator-owned stuff. Like it's not. Li- it's not like Allison looks over my Daredevil script before I send it to Marvel. Ah, yeah, those should. editors. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm just. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love you, buddy. But yeah, but that actually does happen. Where like some, you'll have an assistant, like a, a direct assistant as a mangaka that will look over your work before it goes to the, you know, like even at the Nemo stage or whatever, or will work with you on stuff. It's not. It's very rare, but that happens as well. So there, there are people who are involved at an idea stage or a text stage. It's not always just an editor mangaka relationship, you know, like the company and then the person. There's, there's a lot of other permutations there, and I think that that's something that's, yeah, we we gotta understand that there's a lot of people behind the scenes that work to make all of your favorite comics. But even then, like no one's gonna look at One Punch Man and go, "This is anything less than a perfect synthesis of two people's ideas about what this comic should be." You know what I mean? Like well put together comic it yeah. looks good <laughs> it it's like if travis charay drew damage control it's like why <laughs> is this this good <laughs> oh, like Otomo drew damage control and you got to yeah. see every like broken bit of building uh, <laughs> and that's that's no shade to damage control i didn't even i didn't remember that kyle baker drew that third volume of damage control by the way yeah him and early ernie cologne it looks beautiful wow yeah it's a no it's a shade great, to great damage series. control that's, that's <laughs> the quote we just talked a lot about damage control in the don to don show notes which i yeah. just like wrote yesterday so yeah yeah it was pretty fun uh, <laughs> i love that series i loved that series when i was when I, i've I never heard of this i gotta oh, yeah. read this <laughs> oh, yeah. i think it holds up i think it holds up but we'll see it does so yeah so to answer your question i think um, I th- maybe oh, I think Shonen <laughs> wants. Yeah, I think I think manga wants the auteur, just like everybody wants the auteur. And I think some people work together, and co- collaboration is not a given. Collaboration's hard, even with like-minded people. The fact that we've done thirty-seven episodes of a podcast is delightful, but it could have gone a different way. So I'm really glad <laughs> it's still, still good. Doing it. Still, still good. good yeah <laughs> i did, did just talk shit about your daredevil scripts like maybe we're gonna have a conversation <laughs> after this episode's over but i love you guys so i'm glad we get to do this and yeah i think i think it's just do your best to investigate how your favorite manga is made don't just read your manga because that's like it's acceptable but I, I guess if you're listening to a podcast about manga maybe you want to dig a little deeper on it 
learn how your favorite manga is made. Learn if your mangaka, the mangaka that you know, has credited their assistants. If they still work with assistants and who those assistants are. I think the industry is changing in Japan, too, where people are more readily thanking their assistants and recognizing the work that they're doing. And again, you know, my favorite mangaka is Taio Matsumoto, and I got to be friends with him. I'm very, very grateful for that. But when I write him and say, oh, this looks really good, he'll be like, oh, Saho drew that part, like his wife, who's his only assistant <laughs> now, and they work together on all their manga. And it's just like, he's not shy about giving credit where it's due. And I think that that's, that's a good good way to good way to be in the world especially these days so yeah well his his relationship with igami sensei his longtime editor i think is very special too i think one one thing that's hard right is that we we get not a lot of great interviews between about manga artists are published in english Mm. that go into great depth about this type of process or or even with editors i mean i i personally feel like some of the my most favorite people to interview in manga is are the editors because they have such Mm. interesting things to say and it is so rare that i get that kind of access and can have that kind of in-depth conversation because you know me a translator and a and a 15 minute time slot i can barely say hi do you like los angeles (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh interviewing and translation is real tough it's excruciating Uh, So I think that thoroughly answered that question. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> yeah, that was very thorough. Thank you for As sharing David your put stories. It, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Your feelings, your, your thoughts. It's real good. And I think that maybe wraps up this episode. I want to thank everyone for being a part of it this week and for sharing with us your thoughts on Look Back and on auteur, manga, and comic creators. We'll see you next time. Take care. If there is a next time. This has been Manga Explaining, episode number 39. Look Back by Tatsuki Fujimoto. Thanks for listening. For our next episode, we'll be discussing the manga Vinland Saga by Makoto Yukimura. Want to pick up a copy? Consider supporting your local comic book and manga specialty shop. You can find one near you at comicshoplocator.com or check out your local library for print and digital lending options. You can also follow along with our complete reading list and much more at mogsplaining.com. Thanks to DADS for their musical accompaniment this episode. <laughs>